The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Again, thank you for being here this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray, as always, that the words in my mouth, the meditations and thoughts of our hearts would be pleasing to you in these moments. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in April, I mentioned an article that Tim Keller published right before his death. is entitled, Lemonade on the Porch, because in that article, the image of a front porch serves as a metaphor for our culture's relationship to Christianity. A front porch, it's not inside your house, but it's also not out in the street. It's where you act as host, but it's not the rooms of intimate relationships like further into the house. And as Keller explains, our culture was never fully Christian, but it used to sit on our front porch in the sense that it shared many common beliefs with us. And as a result, the culture valued the church and its role within society and Non-Christians were significantly prepared to hear the more specific claims of Christianity and believe them. And it's no secret that that is no longer the case. Listen to this quote from Abraham Kuyper and what he said in 1907. He said, religion no longer occupies the place it used to in social and public life. The atmosphere that one time was favorable to religion now in fact suppresses it. Nominal Christians who went along for the ride are beginning to abandon the historical faith and dedicated Christians are feeling that the culture no longer carries them on its waves. Instead, they're becoming increasingly weary as they have to swim against the current. He said that 116 years ago, but we now in Austin are living in what was the Netherlands so long ago. But how do we now today, where we are, swim against the current and still faithfully engage our culture as Christians. How do we do that? The way in which Samson has done it, as we've been reading, in foolishness and impulsivity and anger and spite or mocking vengeance and brutality. That seems to be what many of our culture expect of us. Just look at the popular portrayals of religion and novels and various TV shows. Secular creatives imagine a world like that of The Handmaid's Tale or even Game of Thrones. Uh, In Game of Thrones, there's a character called the High Sparrow. He's something of a high priest or a pope. And in both the books and in the TV series, he goes barefoot and he dresses in rags and he, he rejects comforts and riches, but he also amasses a really large religious military that is used to enforce all of his religious rules. And in the TV shows, his portrayal is even amplified further. His army is called the faith militant, and they're especially brutal. 
They, they brand themselves with a religious symbol on their foreheads and they beat people with spiked clubs. And then when someone is accused of a moral crime, they're stripped naked and they're paraded through the streets on what is called a walk of atonement where they themselves bear their own punishment as people throw refuse and trash at them while a religious leader walks behind them and chants one word, shame, shame, shame. And that seems to be what many in our world and our culture imagine we would do if we gained significant cultural and political power. Question is, is it? And what does Samson's story say? And how is Jesus different from Samson? And how are we as Christians different from the world in the way in which we engage our culture? Three points this morning to answer those questions. Number one, Samson's role. Number two, Samson's death. Number three, Jesus's difference. First of all, Samson's role. Why does the Lord raise up Samson, uniquely Samson? We've preached probably 10, maybe 11 sermons on this book throughout uh, the spring. And throughout it, we've emphasized what is inescapable. And that is throughout Judges, the people of God don't get better. They get worse spiritually, morally, and culturally. At the beginning of the book, Israel's adversaries are far more fierce. They come from great distances and they destroy and devastate everyone in their path, Israel included. But then the Lord raises up Judges. But at the beginning... Far less is said about the judges because they're far less complex of characters. They're they're much more simple in their faithfulness to the Lord. And so at the beginning, the, the enemies are more fierce. The judges are more simple. Their stories are shorter and Israel's freedom lasts longer. But with each successive judge, those details flip and the enemies become weaker, the judges more compromised, their stories longer, and Israel's freedom becomes shorter. And here's what we're meant to see through all of those details. And that is that the conflict here in the book, it diminishes as the story goes along to the point where it almost disappears entirely. And that is the downward trajectory. It is a loss of conflict. As the book goes on, less and less of Israel joins the judges to the point where we get here with Samson and who is fighting with him? Who is with him here in our passage in prison with him? No one. He is all alone in his resistance. Historians will tell you that the Philistines, the last enemy in the book of Judges, they weren't that cruel. They look pretty cruel to us here, but they weren't that cruel compared with the earlier nations and the earlier tribes. They were smart and they were crafty. They didn't so much want war with Israel as much as they wanted to absorb Israel. And that is the low point here in the book of Judges. Arguably in all of the Old Testament, the low point for the people of God is absorption, not opposition. It's not when the fighting is the fiercest, it's when the conflict is the least, when Israel is intermarrying with all of those around them and increasingly intertwining themselves economically and culturally and becoming progressively less and less distinct and less and less concerned about it. And so the Lord raises up Samson. And he does so in order to create a conflict. That is his role. His role is that of instigator of a conflict that never should have declined or never should have disappeared. And maybe you've noticed that throughout the book, Israel wants none of it. In chapter 15, 
Now, the tribe of Judah raises up 3,000 men. Judah's the, historically the most faithful of all the tribes of Israel, and they raise up 3,000 men, not to fight the Philistines, but to capture Samson in order to hand him over to the Philistines. And what they say there to Samson in chapter 15 is so very telling. They say, don't you know that the Philistines are our rulers over us? In other words, stop. Just stop. We we don't want to do anything different. This is the way things are. This is the status quo. And we're fine with it. We're fine with the Philistines as a rule. We're fine with their their culture and their gods and their judges and, and their ways. We're fine with everything except you. And then they hand him over. They try to get rid of the one that the Lord has raised up to rescue them. And we have to ask, does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar. That's why I chose our gospel reading for us, because it should sound like Jesus. Because Samson sets a pattern. He sets so many patterns throughout this book that only Jesus ultimately fulfills. And Jesus in our gospel reading says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. So all of those ideas, all those modern ideas about the God of the Old Testament being a God of conflict and the God of the New Testament and Jesus himself being a teacher simply of love and and love without conflict is just completely wrongheaded and really poor reading. Because Jesus here says, I too have come to upend the broken, dark status quo into which you have been absorbed. And the same Israel does the same thing thousands of years later with Jesus that they did with Samson, which is they arrest him and they hand him over to their enemies so that they can continue in their spiritual and moral and cultural absorption. So both Jesus and Samson's role was that to instigate a conflict of sorts. And maybe this also sounds familiar to you on a personal level. All Saints Women's summer study is on Rebecca Cognac de Young's book, Glittering Vices, which is about the seven deadly sins or probably better described as the seven primary vices. Remember that a vice is different than an individual act of sin in the same way that a virtue is different than an individual act of faithfulness. Both vice and virtue, they are habituated ways of being that are the result of countless individual acts over time that form a soul into a particular shape so that now reflexively and immediately and uncritically, this is how someone responds because this is now what they are. They aren't so much a person, for example, who tells lies every now and then, but they are a liar. That is a vice. And what vice do we see growing with Israel throughout Judges? You're probably thinking all of them, which is true, but which one especially? I would argue that it's the vice of sloth because sloth is not so much physical laziness as it is spiritual and moral apathy. Dorothy Sayers, who's a Christian theologian, author from the 20th century, in one of her 16 open letters to what she called a diminished church in England in the 1950s said this. She said, the sixth deadly sin is named by the church acedia or sloth. In the world, it calls itself tolerance. And by that, she means the modern definition of tolerance, meaning accepting every view of anything as equally true and valid. So in the world, it calls itself tolerance, but in hell, it's called despair. It is the accomplice of other sins and their worst punishment. 
It is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing it would die for. And that is Israel. Assimilated, absorbed, apathetic. Question is, is it us? And if so, we too need an instigator. So what is it or who is it that can move us? And that brings us to point two, Samson's death. Look at our text here from Judges chapter 16. And notice what precedes Samson's death. There are two things that precede his death. Number one, praise. And number two, prayer. And so first of all, who in verses 23 and 24 is being praised? This This Philistine God, Dagon, is being praised. And notice the emphasis, our God has given Samson into our hand. So our, our, do you hear the emphasis? And it continues on in verse 24. And when they saw him, meaning the statue of Dagon, they praised their God and repeated again, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country. These pronouns here are important. It's a merry affair, verse 25 tells us. That's the word. They're happy and they're drunk. And when they get good and drunk, they bring in blind and defeated Samson to entertain them just by standing there in his blindness and his chains. And what is it that the Philistines don't know? Because throughout this book, not knowing has been a major theme. Back in chapter 13, Samson's father didn't know that he was engaging with the angel of the Lord. And in chapter 14, he didn't know He and his wife didn't know that all of Samson's foolishness was a part of what the Lord himself was doing. And then chapter 14, also the Philistines don't know the answer to Samson's riddle. In chapter 16, Delilah doesn't know the secret of of Samson's strength. And at the end of chapter 16, Samson does not know that the Lord and his power has left him. And, And by the way, not knowing is something that we should consider. Because almost all the action of this story transpires while people who are involved are unaware of what's fully happening. We should apply that and consider that for our own lives. That we don't know anything close to all that the, war, the Lord is doing in our lives and in this world. We are more people who do not know than we are a people who do. And that should give us hope. It should also lead us to be very, very careful to definitively say, this is what the Lord is doing because we all too often simply do not know. And it should find, we should find hope in it because the Lord is always doing more than we could ever ask, we could ever imagine. But what is it here that the Philistines don't know? They don't know that Samson is blind and shaved and standing before them here in chains, not because of Dagon, but because of the Lord, because the Lord gave him over. He, he is here as he is because of what the apostle Paul thousands of years later will say at the end of second Corinthians chapter 12, because of God's power, because God's power is perfected in what? In weakness. Paul says, so when I'm weak, then I'm strong and here blind and defeated, dead, almost here in prison and helpless. Samson gets it. He gets it, what the Apostle Paul would so many years later say. He would get it that he is the jawbone of the ass, 
Remember last week I talked to you about the satirical song that, that, that Samson sings after he slays a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. He says, with the jawbone of an ass, I've piled them in mass. And he was making fun of them. It was intentional and meant to make people laugh when they read it. He was basically calling them asses. And now here he gets it. He gets it that he himself was nothing more than the jawbone of the donkey in the Lord's hands. But apart from the Lord, he's the ass and he gets it. He learns that here and he also learns repentance and he prays. It's the second thing that precedes him in his death. Verse 28, O Lord God, please remember me in my foolishness in the wake of, of, all, of being given over all that I've desired and demanded. Please remember me and strengthen me even as I sit here in the outcome of my failed self-sufficiency. Remember me. And all of us at some point will sit or stand where Samson does in the outcome and in the wake of our own failed self-sufficiency. Have you seen the press conference with the OU softball team after they won the national championship? I can't, I can't believe I'm about to speak positively about OU here. And I hope that my, I hope that my parents aren't watching, but a reporter asked OU star player, how do you keep the joy after they had won the national championship? How do you, ESPN asked this, how do you keep the joy of playing and handle the unique pressure of the national championship win streak when anxiety could so easily set in? And she answered, the only way to have a joy that doesn't fade is from the Lord. And then she went on so eloquently and profoundly to speak about the difference between happiness that comes from circumstances and true joy that comes from the Lord. And she said plainly, softball can't bring someone joy after they've won like five in a row. And then her teammate next to her picked up on her sentiment and on that answer and said, 1000%, if we lose, it's not the end of the world. We know that because our lives are in Christ and that's all that ultimately matters. And then her teammate next to her picked up on that answer and basically said the same thing. And it brought me to tears. I've cried so many tears because of OU over the years. And this was very different. These young ladies articulated the paradox of the Christian life so winsomely and eloquently. And that paradox is this. You can't be too weak. You can only be too hard or too proud or too self-reliant or self-sufficient. And here the Lord gives Samson over justly and fairly, but redemptively to teach him the true source of his strength, which he accesses through prayer. The only time Samson prays in his story in these four chapters is when he's about to die. In chapter 15, he's about to die of thirst, and so he prays. And here in verse 30, he says, let me die with the Philistines. And the Lord hears him. The Lord in his infinite and incalculable grace hears Samson. He doesn't deserve to be heard. He doesn't deserve for the Lord to hear one word of his prayer, but the Lord longs to hear the prayers of his people and answer them. And the Lord will hear a prayer like this from you, whomever you are, and whatever your circumstances or your relationship with him may be. And so will you pray? And some of you are where you are because you have some very real opposition in your life. Whatever it is, whomever it is, maybe it's a person, group of people, 
whether it's sickness or some vice, something. And maybe even because you've made some foolish, self-sufficient decisions and choices. And maybe even the Lord has given you over to that which you have demanded. He pulled back, he's pulled back from you like he's pulled back from Samson. But he did so temporarily in order to wake you up and to teach you, to show you your need for weakness and humility and faith so that you would not only repent, but pray and to truly pray, to pray as Samson prays, to ask for the Lord's strength to do in and through you what apart from him, you can never do and would never do. And so will you pray? Jesus did. Samson set so many patterns that only Jesus fulfills. And the night before he was crucified, the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. He says, not my will, but thy will be done. It is a prayer for strength, for the Lord to do through him, for God, the father to do through him, what apart from God, the father, he cannot do. It is a prayer of weakness. In that moment, Jesus, God, the son is weak and in weakness, he is made strong. The power of God is made perfect. So friends, again, you can't be too weak. And you won't truly pray until you know weakness. And this brings us to the final point, to to point three, Jesus's difference. In the end, what really is the difference between Jesus and Samson? Throughout the series, I've tried to show you and to stress to you all the very similarities and how Samson sets pattern after pattern that only Jesus fulfills. Even here, Samson sacrifices himself. He dies in order that all of the people of God's enemies might be defeated and they might live truly free lives. So here is another similarity. There's so many similarities, but what is the difference? And we find the difference in our Ephesians reading from chapter one of Ephesians with the apostle Paul. Here in our New Testament reading, the apostle Paul draws upon the most often quoted or alluded to Psalm in all the Psalter. Anyone guess what that Psalm is? It's none of your favorites. It's Psalm 110, which was our call to worship. And there, David himself prays that God would use him, that he would use him as a king to do this, execute judgment on the nations and fill the world, fill the earth with corpses and to shatter heads. It says shatter kings, but the Hebrew literally says to shatter heads. Literally, that's what it says. And that's what Samson does throughout his life. He shatters heads. He shatters the chiefs. And here in his death, he did so even more than in his life. And Judges celebrates it. Judges 16 here at the very end says, it was the dead whom he killed at at his death were more than those he had killed during his life. So thousands of bodies, Samson fills the earth with bodies. All the Old Testament heroes and kings do this. And the Lord even does this through him. He puts their enemies under his feet, piled up like bodies so he can use it as a footrest. So why is this the most often quoted or most often alluded to Psalm in the New Testament? It is in order to stress and to show, to mark the difference that Jesus makes. Notice the shift with Paul. In verse 22, Paul says that the Lord has put all things, all enemies under his feet. So Psalm 110 fulfilled, prayer answered, even with Jesus. But Jesus hasn't filled the earth with his enemies' bodies. What does Paul say that Jesus is filling the earth with? With his body. 
He didn't kill his enemies like Samson. He converted his enemies into friends and to followers, and he's filling the earth with them. He's filling the earth with us, not with bodies, but with believers. And here's the point. The point is that there is a different and a better way to defeat and to destroy one's enemies. And it's not the way of personal strength. It's not the way of self-sufficiency, but weakness in the very grace of God. At his death on the cross, Jesus also prayed. And what did he pray from the cross? Father, forgive them for they do not know. They do not know what they do. And then Jesus alone died pulling the the full weight of the judgment of God down upon him to make that forgiveness for which he prayed a reality and to make it possible that the Lord would receive in his grace any and all prayers. And that is grace, friends. And that is the message of Samson. That's the message of Jesus. That's the message of the entire Bible. And grace, the very grace of God alone can change your heart and change even how you fight against any evil or any sin or any darkness. And we have to fight. We can't pretend that there is no evil in this world or no darkness or no sin. We can't be what the church calls slothful or what the world calls tolerant or or what hell calls despair, as Dorothy Sayers said. We have to fight, but there is a new way to fight. And it's the way of Jesus's grace that all the New Testament letters, all of them describe. Paul in Romans 12 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And overcome is literally fight. It is, it is a military term. Fight evil with good. And he describes the good. He says, abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in honoring one another. Do not be slothful. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of Christians and seek opportunities to show hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Associate with the lowly. Never be lofty or wise in your own eyes. Never avenge yourselves. Overcome. Fight evil with good. And some of you are thinking, Tim, If I go out into the world and I engage the world like this, I'll get crushed. I'll lose so much. Yes, you will, probably. But what will you gain? I mentioned Tim Keller at the beginning of the sermon, so let's close with him. There's a story I've told you before. He often told this story of a corporate executive in New York City talking with him after church. He asked her how she ended up there at his church at Redeemer. And she told him because she made a massive mistake at work. It was a fireable mistake. And her supervisor, however, took the blame for her with the board. He said something like, I should have seen the error earlier. I should have trained her better, something like that, which this lady knew wasn't true. She knew that her boss was totally innocent and she was fully at fault, but he took the fall for her, which was inexplicable in her eyes. She had never seen anything like it. She never imagined anything like it in the the cutthroat business world of New York City. And so she asked him why. And he mumbled something like him having the social capital with the board and just to forget about it, but she wouldn't forget about it. She had to know why. And so she kept asking him, asking him, and finally said, okay, I'm only gonna say this once. I'm a Christian 
And what's central to our faith is that God himself did for me with my sin what I, in a very, very small way, did for you with your mistake. He took my blame. He took my consequence by dying on the cross. He did it out of necessity for my salvation. I did it for you out of gratitude for my salvation. And then she said, where do you go to church? And that is Jesus filling the earth with his body. And that is the difference between him and Samson and us and the world. So do not be overcome with evil. Overcome evil with good, the very goodness of God in Christ to you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that we this morning would once again and even more fully know the grace of God to us in and through your son. We thank you for him. We thank you for our new life in him. And we pray that we would faithfully live as becomes the followers of your son. For we pray in his name. Amen.